0: Last week we talked about gratitude in prayer. Today we're talking about the purpose and practice of confession in prayer, which I think is especially helpful for those who grew up in the Northeast. Probably most of you guys grew up in the Northeast. The Northeast is predominantly Roman Catholic, just statistically, in terms of Christian belief. And so if you grew up as a Roman Catholic, or maybe some of you are here and you still consider yourself to be a Roman Catholic... Um, there's some big questions of confession. Questions of confession, which quite honestly really ruffle people um, and get their feathers kind of ruffled (laughs) with the ruffling. Like, do I have to confess to a priest? Like, do I need to go talk to Pastor Bill while he's like in a little box? These are questions that come up, okay? And so I don't know what your background is necessarily with Christianity, with um, the Christian faith, but maybe some of you have those questions. Maybe you've been coming to Revolve and you still have those questions. Some of you were raised in certain traditions, and even though you haven't gone to confession in decades, you still kind of feel like this blatant, latent, you know, guilt because you haven't done that. And so maybe some of you can relate to those questions. We're going to address those today. You know, we want to begin by saying there's really great danger. In sin. There's great danger in sin. Proverbs 14, verse 12, says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, its end is the way to death. You know, in the moment, sin always seems Pretty fine. You know, it's first of all, it seems kind of fun because you wouldn't do it if it wasn't fun. And in the moment, it seems like not a big deal. But if we let sin run its course, this is what the author of that proverb is saying it doesn't end somewhere fine. Now, we can prove this by giving some dramatic examples. And probably everybody in this room has an example that they could dig out of the attic of their mind of a friend, family member, somebody you went to high school with, whatever it might be. You know, that extra glass of wine at the restaurant might seem like no big deal until you get in a DUI or you get pulled over or you accidentally hurt someone, accidentally kill someone. That casual relationship with pornography, you know, statistically, 60%, over 60% of men in this room struggle with pornography. Let that sink in. Statistically, over 60% of the men in this room struggle with pornography. Statistically, more than a third of the women struggle with pornography. Statistically, 40% of pastors have had affairs. So that casual relationship with pornography or lust that might not seem like it's hurting anybody, it's actually destroying your marriage, it's propagating sexual exploitation, trafficking, and slavery across the world, as the vast majority of sex workers are people who are there beyond their will. In the moment, it might not seem like a big deal. Marching in that pro-Hamas rally might seem hip and harmless as a college student in 2023 until you watch the world repeat history and spiral into genocide and war. You know, these things might seem like casual little things in the moment. That extra glass of wine, you know, okay, so I didn't guard my my eyes last night, that kind of idea. Everybody else is doing this, why wouldn't I? There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. You see, although the impact of sin in the moment is not always catastrophic, it's like drinking poison and eventually leading to your demise. The bottom line is this. There's great danger in sin. There's great danger in sin because sin doesn't just impact you. Sin comes out of you like ripples when you throw a, a rock in a pond. It impacts you. It impacts your family. It impacts your church community. It impacts your world. This is true of any sin. You may not necessarily think about it. But it's the truth. You know, in the book of Joshua, we see this guy named Achan. Achan is there at a, at the, at a battle early on in the book of Joshua. And God says to them, look, you cannot save this pagan gold that they use to sacrifice to idols. And you need to get rid of all of this stuff. You need to burn these idols. You need to get rid of the sacrificial meat that they're using. You need to devote it all to destruction. There's only certain things that you're allowed to save. And those things are for my purposes." And Achan, he's there, and they're doing the battle thing, and then he sees some stuff, and he's like, I kind of want that. And then he takes it, and he hides it in his tent because he knows he wasn't supposed to. It's no big deal. Like, what's a, you know? So he wanted that Nintendo Switch, you know? Jericho had lots of them lying around. So he took one, put it in his tent, and then guess what happens? After they have this great battle at Jericho, the Israelites, they decide to go out to ai or A, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And they go and they get routed, shockingly, because there's only a couple thousand of them and there's tens of thousands of the Israelites. And the Israelites get completely routed and chased away. And they go to the Lord and they say, Lord, what have you done? Why would you bring us out of Egypt? So we get beat by a couple of guys. I mean, there's cities, two vowels, Lord, A-I. Is this a precursor to artificial intelligence? No, I'm just kidding. Okay, so they get routed by the city of Ai, and God says that's because you got sin in your camp. And eventually they find out that it's Achan, and Achan is like, well, look, I just took this. It's just me. But now Achan is set aside for destruction instead of the stuff he kept. And not only that, but his family is set aside for destruction because of their father's sin and thousands of people are hurt wounded or died in battle because of his sin Achan's sin had great danger for the community for his family for himself David and Bathsheba you know David had an affair with Bathsheba he saw her bathing on the roof and he said that looks nice I need a bath as well and so he and Bathsheba took a bath so to say and uh, and what happens? It's not just their sin. She gets pregnant. Now David has to cover up his sin. So now David has to figure this out. So he brings Bathsheba's husband home. He gets his husband drunk. Now he's convinced his friend to sin, getting him drunk. He says, you need to go sleep with your wife so that she can get pregnant. And that that way he can cover up his sin. But he refuses because he has more honor than David. And now David really panics because he doesn't know how he's going to cover this up. So he sends him back to the battlefield with a letter in his hand that says to the commander, Joab, put my good buddy on the front lines. And then when it's the thickest part of the battle, I want you to pull back so that he dies. Because the only way I can cover up my sin is if I can kill him. And so now the impact of sin has gone beyond David." And David and Bathsheba to Uriah. It's impacted the whole community. Eventually, Bathsheba's son, who is born to David in that affair, would also pass away. There's great danger in sin. Maybe you remember the story from First Kings, the story of Rehoboam, who's the son of Solomon. And Rehoboam comes, and he decides that he, instead of listening to the great counselors of the day, um, who who led his father, he's going to take his friends' advice because they were telling him what to do on TikTok. And he decides he's going to follow their advice. And because of his decision to follow them, sin enters into Israel and doesn't just impact him because nobody likes him as a king. It doesn't just impact his family because now there's tension in the dynasty. It impacts the community because the northern kingdom, 10 of the tribes split off from Israel and they divide into another northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, all because Rehoboam, was an idiot, because there's great danger in sin. Beyond that, there's great danger in unconfessed hidden sin. Or you could put it this way, the secrets that all of us keep. Can we just be honest? The secrets that all of us keep. There's great danger in that. Psalm sixty-six eighteen 18 says, if I had cherished. Iniquity. In other words, if I had loved my sin, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened to my prayers. Let that sink in. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened to my prayers. First, you say, well, that's old covenant. First Peter 3, 7. Husbands, be considerate as you live with your wives so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Isaiah 59.2, The Lord's arm is not too weak to save you, nor is his ear too deaf to hear you call. It's your sin that has cut you off from God. And because of your sin, he's turned away and will not listen anymore. Now, there's some nuance here in the Old and New covenant. But the point is this, it doesn't matter which way you cut it. Sin has real consequence. And hidden sin, in other words, sin that you don't want to deal with, sin that you say, well, nobody knows about it, and so I can just kind of keep kicking this can down the street because I do this in the dark. I do, and nobody's around. The only one who knows about it is my family or my best friend or not even my, my spouse knows about it that sin, the sin that you don't want to deal with, comes with severe warning in the Bible. You know, Jesus doesn't actually talk a lot about confession. He doesn't really talk a lot about confession, but what he does talk about is repentance. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe. Well, what does Repentance, what is confession? How do these things go together? You know, repentance is a deep sorrow for sin. It's a deep sorrow for sin accompanied by a sincere desire to turn away from that behavior and turn to God. It involves a change of mind, a change of heart, and then those things turn into a change of action. That's true repentance. I say true repentance because you can punish your child for doing something wrong, and they can change their behavior because they don't want to get in trouble again, but their heart and their mind can still be bent against you. That's not true repentance. That's worldly sorrow. I'm upset that I got caught, not that I've actually done something wrong. Repentance is this idea of turning away, and so it's I'm walking this way, And I've changed my mind, I've changed my heart, and now I want to walk this way. I was fighting, and now I'm surrendering. That's repentance. Part of repentance is confession. Confession is the verbal acknowledgement in prayer, not to your priest. It's the verbal acknowledgement in prayer of your sin before God. It involves openly admitting wrongdoing, expressing remorse, and asking for forgiveness. Confession is specific. Specific. There's three great examples of this kind of confession in the New Testament. The first is the parable of the prodigal son. If you're familiar with that story there's two sons and the one son the younger son he goes to his dad and he says I wish you were dead so can you give me my half of the inheritance now and I can go out and do what I want to do and his dad says well I'm not going to die but here's your half of your money he says peace out you're dead to me and he walks out and he goes out and he spends all of that money and he spends it on women and booze and partying and and then he runs out of money And now a famine hits the land. He doesn't know what he's going to do. And so instead, he gets a job at a pig pen, and he's looking at their food, their slop, and he's like, man, that looks good. I am so hungry. And he comes to his senses, and he says, what am I doing? My father's got servants who eat better than these pigs, and I'm here doing this. I'm just going to go back to my dad. I'm going to tell him what I did was wrong, and I'm going to beg him if I can be one of his servants." And while he's walking back, he's practicing this speech in his head, and it says his father sees him from a long way, and his father comes running to him, and he wraps his arms around him, and he says to his dad, I have sinned against heaven and against earth. I've sinned against you. And his father throws a cloak on him, puts a ring on his finger, slaughters the fattened calf, and he says, my son was dead. Now he's alive. Come. What's done is done. The past is in the past. And I want to share that up front because confession is not a threat. Confession is an invitation to experience the life-giving way of Christ, the way of eternal life. When we talk about confession today, it's not saying, well, you better confess because you know what? God's going to smack you with a ruler. No, that's not what I'm trying to get at. What I'm trying to get at is we are invited to confess because God wants to say, come home. Come home. My son was dead. Now he's alive. I want to walk forward with you in great relationship. That's the invitation before us. The other story is the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up the top of a sycamore tree, And he climbs all the way up to the sycamore tree and he wants to get a peek at Jesus. And he's looking down at Jesus and he sees Jesus and Jesus walks by him and he says, hey, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the one who steals from people and then pockets the money. Yeah, you, I'm having dinner at your house tonight. And Zacchaeus scrambles down because he's a wee little man. And he scrambles down and he says to Jesus, he says, Jesus, I'm going to give back everything that I stole and even more. He confesses to God that he stole and that he's going to have restitution. He's going to restore that which was lost even more. And you know what Jesus says to him? Truly, I tell you, salvation has come to this house today because God's response to our confession, I want to hammer this home, is he wants to offer forgiveness. Not that he wants to go, I told you you're an idiot. And we have Peter Peter, strong-headed Peter, he's so strong, he's so brave that he cowers to a little slave girl two times out of three times as he says, I don't know that guy, Jesus. I never even met the man. I don't know who you're talking about. I would never be with that guy. He denies him three times before the rooster crows. And then after Jesus is resurrected, Jesus meets him on the shore. And three times, once for every time, he denies Jesus. He says, Jesus, do you, He says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And every time, Peter says, Lord, you know that I do. Because confession isn't always confessing something that's negative. It's also confessing something that's true. Lord, you know that I do. I'm weak, but you know that I love you, Lord. And Jesus restores him. Peter thought that his sin disqualified him. That's why he went back to fishing. He thought, I denied Jesus three times. Jesus isn't going to let me be part of his crew anymore. He's got a new squad. No, Jesus says, Peter, what are you doing? Why are you fishing? I told you, now you're a fisher of men. You're a shepherd now. Feed my sheep. You're not doing this job anymore. And in response to Peter's confession, Jesus restores him fully. He says, Peter, I have plans for you. Guys, what is the purpose of confession? What is the purpose of confession? We're going to spend the rest of our time in Psalm 32. The purpose of confession. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, begins with this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Transgression is just a synonym for sin. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. Let me just make a couple comments here on these verses. Um, first of all, the reason the man who confesses, the reason the man is blessed where there's no deceit in his spirit is because he's not lying to himself. He's not, he doesn't have a false pretense where he says, well, I don't have any sin. Matter of fact, 1 John says that if anyone claims to not have sin, they're a liar. But here, the psalmist says, blessed is the man who in whose spirit there is no deceit. That doesn't mean the man who never sins. It's the man whose sin is covered. And the reason his sin is covered is because he's acknowledged it and he's confessed it. And so let us remember always that the gospel is not about the fact that you don't sin or that you can't not sin, cannot sin. You get the point. The gospel is about the fact that we know nothing but sin in and of ourselves, but we come to God with our sin, and we change, exchange it for his righteousness. See, our reality, if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, that his death paid for the penalty for your sins, that his resurrection is the future guarantee of your resurrection, and that he sent his Holy Spirit so that you could actually have that promise and follow him as king today, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you placed your trust in that, your reality is that your transgression is forgiven and that your sin is covered, and you are blessed because the Lord Does not count iniquity against you. If God forgives us on the cross, then why do I need to confess today? If God has forgiven me, if He's washed all my sins away, if He's removed my sin as far as the east is from the west, what is the purpose of confession? Because I already did that, it's been forgiven. And I think to really answer that, we need to think about the first line of what's commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who is in heaven, holy be your name. Think about those those two concepts that seem to be in paradox together. Our Father and Holy You have this this paradox of complete intimacy and then holy, which literally means separate. And God is holy, holy, holy. He's completely other. He's completely separate, but he's also called our father. And this is this reality that confession deals with. See, the first thing I want you to realize is that confession restores a fractured relationship with our father confession restores a fractured relationship with our father. What do I mean by that? God has gone to remarkable lengths so that you can call him father. We take that for granted because a lot of you guys memorized that prayer when you were growing up, but do you realize that in John chapter 5, the Jews decide they want to kill Jesus? And do you want to know why they want to kill him in John chapter 5? It says, Jesus called God his father and in so doing put himself on the same level as God and so therefore the Jews searched for a way to kill him. That they wanted to kill Jesus because he called God his father but because of Jesus' work on the cross, now you are actually encouraged and able to call him your father. Otherwise, you weren't. You know, we say these like cheesy, it's really churchianity. We say these really cheesy churchianity things like everybody's, God's everybody's father. No, he's not. Otherwise, you wouldn't need to be born again. You need to be born again. What did Jesus say to the Jews, to the Pharisees of the day? He said, oh, I'll tell you who your father is. His name rhymes with bevel. It's devil, by the way. That's who your father is. You need to be born again so that your the God in heaven can be your father confession restores a fractured relationship with God you see sin creates this chasm between God and man. We see that immediately in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sin, there's this chasm immediately. There's this break between their relationship with God vertically, their relationship with, their, with themselves because they now have shame and they're hiding, their relationship with their spouse because they all of a sudden want to fight for each other and can, who's going to control and who's going to be lazy and all this kind of stuff. Sin creates separation, but Jesus' sacrifice was all about bridging that separation and providing a way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. The only way you come to the Father is through me. He becomes that bridge whereby we can have access relationally to the Father. So then how can I say that sin or the confession restores a fractured relationship? Because sin creates relational Cracks and confession repairs them. This is what I mean. When you and your spouse fight, your relationship is strained. It doesn't mean you're divorced, but your relationship is strained. When you fight with your children, your relationship is strained. It doesn't mean you legally disowned them because you're having a fight with your kids that day, but the relationship is under tension. If you continue under that tension, ignoring it and not dealing with it, will you wind up with a healthy relationship with your spouse or your children? No. You'll wind up with an unhealthy relationship with your spouse or your children. It doesn't mean that you're no longer a parent because you're fighting with your kid, but your relationship is not in a healthy place. But if you have a healthy marriage, if you have a healthy parental relationship, you always seek... Reconciliation. You refuse to go to bed angry. You talk through what happened. You apologize sincerely. You make restitution as needed. And you don't lord forgiveness over your spouse like it's a club. Well, maybe if you improve your act, I won't beat you with this. That's not true reconciliation. Confession, apologizing, Restitution within a marriage is about helping your relationship to be the healthiest that it can be. It's not the means by which you become married. It's the same way in our relationship with God. Salvation is like getting married, okay? Salvation is like getting married. And just because I sin today, and I'm sure that I will, just because I sin today doesn't mean that God's going to say, oh, here's a certificate of divorce, loser. No. Just because I sin doesn't mean that I'm going to left behind by God. No, God is committed to us. He says, I will lose none. Salvation is secure. But confession, the author of Hebrews says, cleanses my conscience so that I can actually walk forward in a healthy relationship with the Father. You know, when I was new to the faith, I used to think that every time I sinned, it was like I lost my salvation and I had to ask God to forgive me again. But it wasn't about maintaining a healthy relationship. It was a real visceral fear that God, if I died, I was done. But as I study the scriptures, I realize that's not what the scriptures teach. Jesus says, I will not lose a single sheep. No one can snatch them out of, out of my hand. He says that nothing can separate us from the love of God, not famine or death or angels or any power. We don't even begin. We need God's power to understand how much he loves us. And so we are eternally secure, but God wants us to come to him in confession so that we can foster a healthy relationship. The same way that you want your spouse to keep short accounts with you so you can have a healthy marriage. Does that make sense? Thank you. So that's number one. Number two is this. Confession rightly establishes my humble place before a holy God. See, God is our Father, but he's also holy. He's seated in heaven. That means he's entirely unique. You know, if you said, well, what is the one characteristic of God which is beyond anything we could possibly understand? It's holy, holy, holy. Scriptures never say God is love, 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 or wrath, 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 or powerful, powerful, powerful. But they do say that God is holy, holy, holy. He's unique. He's the only uncreated thing, being, in reality the creator of all things who lives in unapproachable light. He exists in this paradoxical tension of being an intimate father and an unapproachable creator. Yet because of the cross, we are encouraged and commanded to boldly approach the throne of grace and ask for a glass of water as a little toddler. That's what the cross has purchased for us. Let us now draw near. Confession is an act of humility. Confession reminds me, I am not all that in a bag of chips, although I might eat all that in a bag of chips during Thanksgiving. Confession reminds us that God is holy, and unless God gives me his righteousness, I am not. Confession reminds us that I stand by grace and grace alone because of faith faith alone because of what Jesus did. The point is this, confession keeps your pride in check. And so confession humbles you. The third thing is this, confession reminds us of the gospel truth of forgiveness. Like I said, we don't stand before God because we're good. We don't stand before God because we didn't sin a lot yesterday. We only stand before God because we've been forgiven. And as it says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus, or if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So confession humbles us and it reminds us that because of what Christ did, there's no penance we have to offer. There's no time of humbling that we need to do. No period of mourning that we have to endure that God will forgive you after two days of groveling, no, it is instantaneous, like that father in the parable of the prodigal son who comes sprinting out to embrace his son. He's eager to do it. And so, the purpose in confession is relational restoration, it's proper humbling, and it's keeping the gospel front and center. But what about the process of confession? How do we confess? Let's go back to Psalm 32. Verse 3, he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And then it says, la, meaning pause and think about what we just said. For those of you who have ever felt true conviction, we call this conviction or contrition, different from attrition, conviction um, of the Holy Spirit, you realize you have sinned. You realize you have sinned, and, and, and it could be a minor sin like the slip of a tongue. It could be a major sin like David killing Uriah. But the Holy Spirit takes the word of God, and he appears puts it against your heart like a measuring rod, and he shows you how you do not measure up. You don't measure up in your morality, in your patience, in your the use of your tongue, in your heart, you don't measure up. And as he points out those specific things, there is a deep sense of sorrow and a deep sense of remorse and it brings us to a place where it says in, in, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, it says they were cut to the heart. If you, I can only explain that to you if you've experienced it. This idea of my bones wasted away, that's what conviction feels like. It feels like someone has tied your chest into a knot, and you, and you just feel like you're undone because of what you did, because of who you are, because of your sin. And this drives us, biblically, this should drive us to see forgiveness and to ask God to bring about the change that only he can bring about because I've tried to change myself for years. It doesn't work. That's why self-help books are the best-selling thing on the market, right? Because we're still trying to figure it out. It's a weight on my chest that needs to be released And maybe you're here today and you have that weight on your chest because of something you did, something you're doing, something you're planning on doing, and you feel completely tied in knots over it as I'm talking, and you're like, this guy's creeping me out. And what does the psalmist say the next verse? And I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Think about that. I did not cover my iniquity. So I did this nasty thing and I put a rug over it. It's like, you know, you do something, ever do something crazy like that? I remember when I was a little kid, I was playing catch in the front yard by myself and I, the baseball landed on the windshield and it broke the windshield. And you think to yourself, how can I cover this up? Like put some leaves on it. That'll do it. And eventually you realize there's no way I can cover this up. Like those, my dad's going to see right through those leaves to that baseball that's lodged in the windshield. And so then you're like, I guess I just got to deal with it. And you like psych yourself up, right? I acknowledged my sin to you. Instead of covering up my iniquity, God covered it up. You forgave the iniquity of my sins. You see, if the first thing we do is experience conviction, the second thing we need to do is confess honestly. There's no deceit in my heart. I know what a moron I am, God. And I could give you the list alphabetically, numerically, chronologically, in order of importance and value. I know what I am. We openly admit and confess our sin before God. We acknowledge that, look, if you don't forgive me, I got nothing. See, what flows out of conviction and contrition is confession, telling the Lord that we're sorry. Lord, I did this, and you're right to point it out. And all I can ask is that you forgive me, because that's all I got. And 1 John 1 9 again gives us that promise. If we confess our sins, he is faithful to his word, and he's just to what he did on the cross because it's already been paid for to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us so that we can be clean and not walk around stained. This is our confidence in Christ. Look at Psalm 32, 6 to 7. He says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer of confession, that's the context of the psalm, to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. We respond to conviction. We confess with our mouth what's wrong, and the third thing is this. We do it quickly. Now is the time to confess. I don't know what your kids are like, But um, when we sometimes when you reprimand your children, it goes like this. You did something wrong. And they look at you like this. And then you know what you do? You just say the same thing a little louder. Maybe they didn't hear you the first time. You know what I'm saying? You did something wrong. And then they go like this. And they really start digging in. And this is when as an adult, you're like, (laughs) Oh, you ain't seen nothing. You want to go? Okay. And so everything escalates, right? And if in that moment your child had responded with repentance or you had responded in grace, it wouldn't have escalated. You see, we confess quickly. I don't think I think that we try to hide our sin. We try to hide our sin from God as if he doesn't see us. And This is what it says in Psalm 139. It says, even in the darkness, he sees you, like he saw you when he was knitting you together in your mother's womb. He knows everything you're going to say before you say it. Like God knows you and you can't hide from him. And that's why the Psalm ends by saying, if there's any grievous way in me, would you bring it to my attention, please? God knows who we are. And so we confess quickly. This implies urgency. And I'll tell you why it's urgent. It's urgent for two reasons. One, it's urgent for those of you who don't know Christ because you have no idea how many days you have in your life. You could die today. And so we say, well, I'll deal with that when, I'm, when later. I got a lot of questions, but I don't have time to ask those questions today. You deal with it today. And then for those of us who are followers of Christ, I'll tell you why we don't have time to entertain our sin. Because what we're doing is we're missing all of the things that God wants to do in us and through us as we embrace our sin instead. And so as I'm too busy screaming at my child, I'm missing an opportunity to actually live out the good news in another capacity. As I'm too busy squandering my money with this, I'm not using my resources to further the gospel here. And so as I embrace my sin, I'm choking out other opportunities that God has for me. And that's why the psalmist says, confess quickly. Confess quickly. Let everyone who is godly offer a prayer of confession at the right time. And the time is now. Psalm 32, eight continues. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye. Upon you be not like a horse or a mule without understanding that's stubborn, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. In other words, those who refuse to repent, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Having been convicted of sin and confessing it to the Lord, experiencing the Lord's grace. He now turns to his community and he says, I'm going to tell you guys something, too. I've experienced what it means to be a sinner who's freed by God's forgiveness. And in light of what I've experienced, I'm going to encourage you, don't be like a stubborn mule. Come to God today with your confession. Don't wait until you have all the answers, all the questions figured out, all the this, all the that. Come now. The psalmist switches from this personal prayer to this exhortation of the fellow worshiper, much like I'm doing today. Don't be stubborn. You will reap what you sow. It's better to reap the forgiveness of Christ as you sow confession and repentance than to reap the whirlwind of his wrath. Look, all of us know what it's like to struggle. All of, us know, all of us know what it's like to sin. Nobody here, unless you're ignorant, is gonna claim that I don't sin, that you don't sin. We know what it's like. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you don't sin. Being a Christian means you're aware that you sin, and that you know how much you need God's forgiveness, which means actually I probably have a bigger appetite for sin than most of you guys who think you don't sin. I'm even more aware of my sin. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. And what that means is I know I need help. I need help from the Lord to confess. I need help from my friends and my family because I need someone to keep me accountable because I'm weak, and we need to do this as a community because we cannot afford to have sin destroy us from the inside out. We confess our sins to one another that we might be healed. That's what it says in James. And we don't do that so people can go, oh, man, did you hear we build it? No, we do that so that we can be healed because the truth of the matter is we all wrestle with the same old dirty laundry. And the conclusion is Psalm 32:11 be glad in the Lord and rejoice. O oh, righteous shout for joy all you upright in heart. The final thing that we do as we walk forward in grace You see, having been convicted of sin and having confessed our sin quickly, God is faithful to forgive us. And now we walk forward immediately from the moment we confess with no condemnation and no shame. And the condemnation and shame you continue to feel is not from the Lord. It's the condemnation and shame that the accuser of the brethren points at you with his bony finger. It's the condemnation and shame that you put on yourself. But it is not from Jesus. But if you are caught in a cycle of struggling and every morning you wake up and you say, I'm not going to do that tonight. I'm not going to do that today. And then every night you go to bed and you say, I have failed again. I got two words for you. One, there's forgiveness in Christ. But two, God doesn't want you to be stuck in that cycle. And there is freedom. But you cannot do it alone. Anybody who's gone through recovery programs will tell you that same thing. You cannot do it alone. And I know there's people who are hearing it because I have goosebumps all over my body. I want you to hear me. You can have freedom. But it begins with confession. And so what do I invite you guys to do? Ask God to speak to you. Psalm 139 24, if there's any grievous way in me, reveal it, Lord. Respond to his conviction. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, from all wickedness. And then the third thing is this, walk forward without condemnation in freedom because that is the purpose of confession. It's about freeing you of that conscience so you can live the life that Christ purchased with his blood for you and for us. We're gonna end now, but what I'd like to do is invite some of the elders and those of you who are passionate about intercession to make your way forward. And if you want prayer for any, just because you come up doesn't mean that everybody's gonna think that you're a closet murderer, okay? If you need prayer for anything, even if it's because you were fighting with your family all Thanksgiving, Come up and let us pray for you, okay? Let us pray for you because the truth is we're all in the same boat. Let me uh, close us, Lord, I just pray that you would investigate our hearts. Lord, we are figuring this thing out and none of us have it figured out, but Jesus has it figured out. And so we throw ourselves to you. God, for those who are trapped in a cycle of sin, I ask that you would Bring them to a point of knowing who they can safely confess to. Someone who isn't just going to be their drinking buddy who says, I know it's hard, but someone who's going to say, let's conquer this together in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray for those who are caught in those cycles, Lord, that they would experience freedom today. Lord, let us defeat these things that beset us by the power of your blood.